Oh, Father, it's with care that we take our Bibles now and we turn our attention to your word. Father, through your grace, speak to us through your Holy Spirit, through your written word. Sensitize us. Give us the willingness to bow in humble obedience, to live lives of purity and care before you. Thank you, Father, for the things you accomplish at times like this. So we give ourselves over to you to be your servants, to allow you, through your Holy Spirit, to convict us of sin, to continue to do your work of conforming us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray now. Amen. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 38. We're in Genesis chapter 38. And the reason I emphasize just turning where we're going is just a reminder to some of you who might be new is to know that we're working our way through the entire book of Genesis. If you were with us last week, you know that we started into the great story of the life of Joseph. And this is quite a story, and it's going to basically take up the rest of the book of Genesis. But then here, all of a sudden, starting into the story, the writer then stops and interrupts the story with a story of Judah, his brother. And when I read the stories, uh, this, this chapter 38, and it's, a, it's kind of a rough chapter, it's, it's relatively R-rated, it's about exceedingly sinful matters, it makes me think a little bit of, um, do you ever read or notice um, these stories? Sometimes it's television, sometimes it's like an email that'll go around about stupid criminals. People that have done real crime and then they've gotten caught because of their own stupidity. They, you know, either left their driver's license on the counter of the bank when they were doing the robbery or whatever. Just really stupid stuff. There's lots of stories. We'll not get into them. When I read Genesis chapter 38, I, always, I think this is a story about stupid sinners. It's, it's about a guy like, what did you think was going to happen? How did you think you couldn't get caught? And then I'm reminded that sin is rarely logical and that sinners um, often do really dumb things, don't we? I remember a guy in our church many years ago, another state, another church. He worked for a contractor and I was involved in confronting this man. He was actually the Sunday school superintendent in our church. He had gotten into a mode where he was stealing from his employer by going to the local uh, contracting store and he would buy boots and Carhartt clothing and tools and things, sign the, sign the receipt that, to make it billed to the company. And then when the accountant found it, and said, what is this stuff? He acted like he didn't know anything about it and accused another man in the company of forging his name and stealing. So you know what they did. They looked at the video footage. They tracked in the store. There he was. They got him. It reminds me of a verse that's a good verse for us to tuck in our minds as we enter this chapter 38, this incredibly... Uh, harsh story of sinfulness, of a little verse that we learned when I was a little boy and we taught it to our children when we used the ABCs as reminders for different verses. It's Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. You don't have to turn there. Numbers 
chapter 32, verse 23. I didn't even know for a long time when I was a kid that it wasn't a whole verse. It's just a sentence out of verse 23. It's 23b, the last half of the verse. It goes like this. Listen. Be sure your sin will find you out. Did you get that? Be sure your sin will find you out. Let's say that together. Be sure your sin will find you out. You see, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. What's so amazing about us when we allow ourselves to do stupid, sinful things is that we forget that God has his camera on and you can't fool him. Be sure your sin will find you out. Oh, if only Judah would have thought like this, would have saved himself a lot of grief, huge embarrassment and humility before the community. Let's read the chapter. Once again, we want to try to knock out the entire chapter, all 30 verses of this story of Judah. Judah is the older brother of Joseph. We have entered in in chapter 37 to Joseph. Remember last week we talked about he had his dreams about the the sheaves of grain bowing down to him or his brothers got angry. They were going to kill him partly because of Judah. They didn't kill him, but they ended up selling him to the Ishmaelite traders who were heading down into Egypt where he was then purchased by Potiphar. And that's where we'll pick up the story in chapter 39 next week. It's kind of interesting before we read the chapter and break it down to think about why did the writer do this? Why did the writer start into the story of Joseph? He kind of gets you hooked. It's an interesting story, chapter 37. And he tells you what's happening. And then all of a sudden, there's like this interruption. It's really not an interruption. I think it's best if we think of it as sort of a writing technique. They've got our attention, and now they want to kind of footnote the story. They want to kind of put in a parenthesis. Think of chapter 38 as a parenthesis for in the life of Joseph, but it does apply for for these couple reasons. Let me share just a little bit of a context so that we can think about why it's laid out like this. First of all, you need to think about the fact that this book, Genesis, was written first and foremost largely by Moses to the children, children of Israel when they were coming out of Egypt. And so one of the things he's doing is he's reminding them of who they are, how they got where they are, and what they're doing. And one of the things we need to remember, too, is that he's reminding them that they are a covenant people. And one of the things that we understand in chapter 38 and that we get the background on is that these these are some covenant details. By covenant, I remember the promise that God made to Abraham that he would make a great nation out of him through whom the whole world would be blessed and through whom Messiah would come. Do you know that Judah is the one through whom the lineage passes? You have Grandpa Abraham, great-great-grandpa Abraham, and then you have Isaac. Remember, he sinned and had Ishmael, Isaac, then Jacob and Esau. So Jacob, we're familiar with, he has 12 sons. Joseph's one of them, but Judah is the one through whom our Lord Jesus will come. And so it's covenant details for one thing. This is the one through whom God blesses the world. Judah, a scumbag. Interesting. 
Secondly, I think it's interesting when we study the life of Joseph, we're going to see that his life is characterized by purity, by self-control, by discipline, by honoring God, by living through adversity, by not capitulating to the people around him, by not giving in to his weaker self and his sinful flesh. In contrast to that, almost in a writing technique, he's setting us up to see and magnify the purity of Joseph by seeing the sinfulness of Judah. And thirdly, it's context for the very exile of the children of Israel and the sons of Jacob into Egypt. Think about it like this. We talk a lot about Moses and the children of Israel coming up out of Egypt. How did they get there? Well, that's the story of Joseph. Joseph's been sold into slavery. He's now in Egypt. And we know the story already. He's going to save his family. They're going to have to come to him because they're starving to death because of famine. And one of the things we we learn by looking at the life of Judah is that it's almost like this. It's almost like God said, (laughs) God doesn't do this. Like, I don't know what to do with you. God never says that. But it's kind of that feeling when you read it. God says, I'm going to put you in exile because left to yourself, you're going to just meld into the pagan culture. By looking at Judah and the examples of his brothers and what's happening, they continually just forget about God and just integrate with the pagan culture around them. God wants them to be his people, an isolated people, a special people called by his name. He's going to take them into Egypt. And it's interesting that in the Egyptian culture, apart from evidently Potiphar's wife, who may not even be Egyptian, The Egyptians hated the Hebrews and did not want to intermarry with them. In Egypt, the Israelites will grow up. The sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, will grow. And that's when they grow for 400 years. They just populate. They become a huge nation until Pharaoh's going to kick them out because he's intimidated by them. But down there, the Egyptians and the Hebrews just don't mix. They stay separate. Up here in Canaan, it seems continually... The Israelites want to keep melding in with all the pagans. It's kind of like the church that always wants to become the world. They're God's, they're God's people who always just want to become the world. And Judah is, is just a startling, striking illustration of that. And so for some of those thoughts and reasons, I think that the writer just interjects that to just put, that thing, put this story there so that we have an understanding of what's happening, particularly, though, in the storyline of the covenant promise to Abraham. The first word that we're going to read is that at that time. And let's talk about that briefly and then we'll read and I'll break it down for you. At that time. What time? At the time when Joseph was sold into slavery. So another thing you need to keep in mind as we read chapter 22 is that, excuse me, chapter 38 is that it's going to last for about 22 years. We know that because Judah is going to be present down in Egypt with his brothers 22 years later when Joseph reveals himself to him, when they come and he saves them by giving them grain and food. So during that time when Joseph is growing up in Egypt and all his ups and downs, the life of Judah is captured for 22 years in chapter 38. I'm going to give you five two-word sentences, so to speak, to break down our, our chapter. And the first thing is broken home, broken home. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. 
Judah leaves his family. Further evidence of a home that has just melted down. Further evidence of a broken, disintegrating home of Jacob. They've, they've just about killed their brother. At the last minute, he was rec- rescued largely by Judah's words. They've gone home now. And the, what do they hear at home? They hear their father, Israel, wailing for the loss of his son, Joseph. Remember, they brought his coat. They slid a throat of a goat, spilled blood all over the coat, mauled it in the dirt, tore it up and stuff, broke buttons off of it, whatever, gave it to his father and said, your son Joseph has been attacked and killed by a wild animal. Wild animal. He goes into immediate mourning. He insists, Jacob does, that he is going to mourn until he goes to his grave. They line up one at a time and in, in, in a hypocritical, duplicitous, artificial way, come in and try to console their father. And I suspect that Judah as hardcore of a sinner as he is, he's tired of walking around with his fingers in his ears, hearing his father wail with a guilty conscience, knowing that he's part of the whole uh, schmuck that caused it all to happen, and he leaves. I think that's why at that time, so Judah just leaves. He can't handle it anymore. Further evidence of a broken home. He then takes, number two, a godless wife. There, Judah, verse 2, met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay down with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. We don't know the name of his wife. We just know that she was the daughter of a Canaanite man. So she's a Canaanite girl. This is an act of disobedience on Judah's part. This is something that is off limits for him. He leaves. It appears by the way the sentence is written, we don't know much about it, that it was a a quick decision and it was a, a decision driven largely by the flesh. He's on the run. He begins to do stupid things. You know, when you're not right with God and you're not right with your family and you've sinned against your father and you're running away from your problems, you usually do that, don't you? You usually do more stupid things. And so he immediately makes a bad decision, marries a Canaanite woman, and he now has a godless wife. We move from his broken home to his godless wife where he's going to establish a home. She gets pregnant right away and gives birth to a son whose name was Ur. It occurred to me when I was preaching in the early service that that's kind of a hard name to holler across the neighborhood for your son. Hey, Ur! I don't know how to... Ur! I don't don't know. It's like... That was just funny to me in the early service. It wasn't here, but... um, (laughs) When you're preaching, you should always just stick with the message. And um, so Ur gets... Ur gets born, okay? And so she then conceives again, verse 4, and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, okay? So from verse 5 to verse 6, about 18 or 19 or 20 years goes by. We don't have any details. Just in rapid succession... He and, the, and his Canaanite wife have three sons in a row, all right? And, and then it's time for the oldest one, Ur, to get a, get a wife. So he gets a wife. Judah, verse 6, got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Judah moves from his broken home to find a godless wife, to have wicked sons who in turn commit deadly sins. Number four, deadly sins. Let's read this part. So then Judah said to Onan, 
Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. Let's just stop after that verse and explain that. This is really foreign to us in the culture and even furthermore in the mind of God. Read when you have time. We'll not do it now. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 through 10. God himself gives to Moses 400 years later, the, the instruction, or more than that, but instruction that this is the way he wants it done. And this is the way it works. Okay? Judah had three sons. Ur, Onan, Shelah. All right? Ur is wicked. God kills him. So Tamar is now a widow. So, Jake, so Judah says to the second-born son, okay, Onan... Your brother's wife is a widow. Your brother is dead. You go lie with her now and you help her conceive to have a son. And here's the thinking, all right? What the deal is, is that it was a great privilege to be the firstborn son. It was a great position of honor. It was the one that would particularly uh, be called upon to carry on the father's name. They would receive the blessing. They would get more inheritance than everybody else. It was the position of honor, Now that the firstborn son was dead, what they would do is they would take the secondborn, try to have a son with his wife, and they would name him after the firstborn son, and he would take his father's place. So it's a really bad deal for the secondborn son. His nephew is going to surpass him if he helps conceive him. It seems really foreign to us, but it was logical to them, and that's the way it worked. And God told Israel to do that in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Go figure. You can ask God about that when you get to heaven, okay? So Ur is dead. Onan lays down with Tamar, but look what happens. Verse 8, lie down with your brother's wife to fulfill your duty as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, okay? He wouldn't get to, get to name him. It would be after his brother Ur. He would, it would lose, it would help his position diminish. It would not enhance his position and his potential Because if Tamar never has any sons, then Onan gets to be the position of the firstborn son, the next brother. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. We have a godless wife, and they have wicked sons, and they commit deadly sins, The last part of the chapter then turns its attention back to Judah and Tamar. And I call this section, number five, dirty tricks. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brother. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, and we don't know how long a long time is. This is the other reference to time in this chapter. Remember 38 verse 1, at that time, at what time? At the time that Joseph was sold into slavery. Then Judah leaves home. And then after a long time, what? After the two sons had been killed by God for their wickedness. All right? It falls in line for Judah to give his thirdborn son to Tamar. He now has a complex about his sons. He thinks they're going to die. But Shelah might get killed too. It's kind of interesting. We don't know a lot about what exactly God condemned in that act. I don't think it was any kind of... uh, It wasn't so much the uh, 
sexual nature of the behavior. It was the lack of willingness to follow through to create a, a child according to the father's instruction and so forth. This was seen as an act of disobedience, of selfishness and so forth. And so God condemned him and put him to death too, Onan. So Judah is afraid that a third son is going to die. And so he does something that is really countercultural. And he tells Tamar to go back home and live as a widow with her father. She evidently hasn't even been married all that long that she didn't have a, a, a get uh, pregnant by Ur to begin with. They haven't been together all that long. She's evidently a very young woman. Some more time has gone by and um, she's at home now living as a widow with her father. No doubt her father is like, what are you doing back here? You know, I, we made a deal. You're supposed to be gone. This was not appropriate procedure by Judah. It was selfish on his part. After a long time, Evidently, a number of years, maybe, maybe, uh, I always forget the third son's name. Sheila. Maybe Sheila was like 16 years old. And uh, Sheila wasn't, you know, so maybe three or four years had to go by for him to get to be 19, 20, 21 years old. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. Still doesn't name her, this Canaanite woman. And Judah's wife now dies. When Judah had recovered from his grief, one commentary I read said that that was just a one-week-long period, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend, Hira the Adulamite, went with him. Those old Hira the Adulamite, we met him in verse 1, this buddy that introduced him to his wife to begin with. When Tamar was told, verse 13, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. So she's still childless. She's upset about this. She's going to take matters into her own hands. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for he had covered her face for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, she said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off the veil, off her veil, and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, Where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and he said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, There hasn't been anyone here like that. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. And Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said, and she added, See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Sheila. 
And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was given the name Zerah. And then we'll go right back to the story of Joseph. Is that an incredible story? It's very difficult for me to even read through the part where he wants her burned to death without commenting. Such hypocrisy. We end up with the part where she has twins. It's kind of like deja vu all over again. Twin boys in the womb fighting. One comes out. There's this red scarlet thread. We had a, Remember Edom was red, the twins? I don't know. I don't know what that means. But it's just kind of interesting how all this unfolds. Once again, as is common in Genesis, the younger son is going to surpass the older son, and the younger son is going to be the child of blessing. We have a godless wife. They raise wicked sons who commit deadly sins. And then Judah, in his maturity, and Tamar come together in this odd, sinful manner. Sin is really an embarrassing thing, isn't it? I kind of think that's part of what Judah's issue was when the Adulamite goes with the goat. They can't find this woman. Evidently, he's going door to door. Did you know where the prostitute, what's going on? And finally, you know, my, my, my buddy Judah, I mean, he owes her money. And Judah finally shuts it down. No, forget it. Don't do that. You see, when, he had, when Judah had detoured, it was the time of sheep shearing. It was a time of festivity. It was a time of a lot of men around working. It was the end of the season. It was a time of celebration, kind of like the harvest time. And, and you know, there's just a, a hoop, lot of hoopla. And evidently, it was also a time when sin would go on. These rough men working, coming in from their fields for sheep shearing time. When Judah goes to Tamar, he doesn't recognize her. And the items that she, he gives, this seal in a cord, we don't know exactly what that is, but evidently it was some kind of an item that was on a cord that he would wear around his neck that was his mark, his seal, evidently for doing business even. And then he had this staff that was also evidently very much identified with him. Perhaps it was something that he had personally hand-carved or it was a... Uh, something that was passed down to him, but everybody knew that staff and everybody knew the seal. This is the equivalent of giving up your driver's license and your social security number. They, they very precisely identify the individual beyond question. And so it is at the end when she reveals herself and she says, whoever these are, this is the guy. Judah doesn't have a leg to stand on and so... You do have to give him a little bit of credit in his duplicity and his hypocrisy and his sinful arrogance that he at least acknowledges that she has been more righteous than he because he would not follow through. He doesn't admit and confess his own sinfulness. But what do we get from a story like this? There it is, Genesis chapter 38. Practically speaking, let's just learn quickly three lessons from a sinful man. Three lessons from a sinful man. Number one, we need to learn from Judah the gravity of spiritual carelessness. Spiritual carelessness. It occurs to me that Judah is a man who, does, who makes bad decisions and as a result of his bad decisions and choices, he pays a serious consequence. He has to go to the funeral of two of his sons. Ultimately, his wife dies. 
He is not living a blessed life. How many times I have met with people who are not living a blessed life and they can't figure it out. You start to unfold and unpack the baggage and they made one bad decision after another and they've been so spiritually careless and then they wonder, where's the blessing of God in my life? You cannot have the blessing of God when you live a spiritually careless life. I think particularly with Judah, it's this way. This is most magnified in his choice of who he married. He married a Canaanite woman. He knew that his grandfather Abraham would not let his son Isaac do that. He knew that Isaac would not let Jacob do that. He knew. He knew better. I don't think that Judah knew at this point that he was the direct line, the son through whom our Lord Jesus would be born. I don't think that he really understood that at this point. But he knew that he was not supposed to do this. And I think he's the kind of guy who's characterized, and this isn't in the text, but as I look at his life and I look at his testimony and I look what he did even in his mature years and how easily he sinned, this is a guy who's spiritually careless and his favorite saying is, I don't care. I don't care. He knew better. The young people that are here today... This is how this one works. Your mom and your dad are trying to tell you not to do certain things. And it seems to you like every time you turn around, your mom and dad are just spoiling your phone. My dad, my mom. Listen, if you have godly parents, if you have godly parents who have tried to raise you up in righteousness, that is one of the most precious and valuable things you've ever had in your life. You better hold on to it. Don't resist it. And parents, don't give up. All right? And when your kids come to you and they want to go the way of the world and they want permission to do certain things and they're not surrendered to you, fight. I don't mean beat them up, but I mean don't give up. Stand for what is righteous. I think this is often common in kind of homes where I grew up. Conservative, fundamentalist, Bible homes. Where your mom and your dad... My dad was saved at age 16 really changed his life and he didn't want his boys to be like he used to be. I used to think everybody else was having all the good time. My sisters were the same way. And sometimes when you're raised up in a conservative home with a lot of oversight and a lot of controls because you, you want to walk, that your parents want to teach you right, don't get to where you don't care. Thank God for that. You'll survive. You'll be 18, 19, 20, 21 pretty soon and you can go, go your own way then if you want. But in the meantime, why don't you grow? Why don't you take advantage? Why don't you listen? Why don't you be wise? You think everybody else is having all the fun. I remember my sisters, I've told this before, my sisters, they cracked me up. They're older than I was. And they went to high school in the late 60s when mini skirts were coming in. You know, short, short skirts and stuff. And they were getting shorter and shorter. Go-go boots and mini skirts and stuff in 1969, 70, 71 in there. And my mom made them, girls still wore dresses and skirts to school, my mom made homemade skirts and stuff, so they were embarrassed of their clothes a little bit. And she would make them, they had to be the only short, as short as they could be is the middle of their knee when they were standing up. They couldn't wear shorter than that. Man, they'd get around, they would get around the, the glass shop up the street to the bus stop and they'd be rolling their skirts up, man. <laughs> they'd be coming home off the bus and head right to the bathroom without talking to anybody, make sure they got all their friends' makeup off their face because they weren't allowed to wear makeup. Isn't there something about the world that just wants us to be like him? And it's a fight. Don't give up. But Judah, he knew he wasn't supposed to go do that stuff. He knew, but he just didn't care. He's going to show them. Young people, go ahead and show them. 
Go ahead and show them. You're going you're to live a tragic life without the blessing of God when you disobey your parents and you walk away with disregard for the spiritual things of God. Secondly, Judah, we learn a lesson of generational consequence. Generational consequence. Listen, this is how this one works. We'll not, we've seen it over and over in Genesis. The, this guy makes a decision here and without realizing it, he's brought condemnation on his children. Way down here, he makes a decision and he thinks, it's not a big deal. I don't care. It doesn't matter. And his boys grow up wicked because of his decision-making where he chooses to live. We saw this in the life of Lot. We saw this in the life of Esau. We saw it over and over. I was thinking about the question, does God still do what he did to Ur and Onan? Does God still kill people for their wickedness? That's pretty striking in the passage, don't you think? What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death. Verse 7, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Listen, you better know it. You better know that God still operates with one of his universal spiritual laws. The wages of sin is death. It always is. You never know when it's coming, but the sin always produces death. On the one hand, there's, there's natural consequence. I think that we see this always, often around us, don't we? You sin. Maybe some guy goes off and does terrible things and gets all drunk, whatever, drives across the yellow line, gets hit by a tractor trailer. Bam. There it is. It's in the news every day. Wickedness killing people. But more than that, I was thinking about in the church, and it would just cause me to reflect a little bit on the seriousness of sin in God's eyes. There's natural consequence, but I think there's also a divine intolerance. We have testimony in Scripture. Do you remember that story in Acts chapter 5? Their names were Ananias and Sapphira. It was a husband and wife team. They teamed up to schnooker the church out of money and Peter, the apostle, out of money. And God struck them dead right in front of the church. You know, I think that we're going to see Ananias and Sapphira in heaven someday. I think they were brother and sister in Christ, as far as I can tell. They sinned, and God used them as an example. We have an example in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Remember that guy that was sleeping with his father's wife? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the church in Corinth was a mess. The Apostle Paul's writing a letter back to Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 5, he says... There's sin going on in your church that isn't even named among the pagans, among the Gentiles. In other words, in their Corinth community, which was a horrible community, it was not acceptable to do that sin that was being accepted in the church. In the name of being full of grace and mercy in a loving church, they were overlooking that sin. Paul says you shouldn't do that. Not even the Gentiles around you would do that. You need to... You need to confront that guy. You need to confront him of your sin. And you need to commit him to Satan for the destruction of his body, his flesh, for the saving of his soul. What does that mean? Evidently, God will on occasion, when there's willful sin in the life of a believer, make them sick or even take their life, cut their life short to keep from embarrassing his church or to keep them from ruining the testimony of Christ even more. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul, again writing to the Corinthian believers, 
about the communion service, the Lord's Supper. Remember, they were having, they were drunken and they were abusing the Lord's Supper. And he confronts them in the letter and he says, this shouldn't be this way. And he said, because of this, because of your abuse of the communion time and the Lord's Supper and the sinfulness that's going on, many, some of you are sick and others of you have died, are asleep, he said. So then you have to say, okay, I wonder how many people at Fellowship Bible Church have died in the last 10 years because of sin. Well, I have no idea. Death is a direct result of sin. I'm so thankful for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to propose to you that there's a work system here. You better be good or God's going to get you. But it is a humble reminder, isn't it? When you see those startling statements, he was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord killed him. John, in his epistle of chapter 5, 1 John 5, talks about a sin unto death. It's a hard passage to interpret. Evidently, the the recipients of John's letter understood the difference between a sin that didn't bring death and a sin that brought death. I take it that he's talking at some level about actual physical death that was brought on by the the sinning brother. Could it be that God sometimes makes us sick or takes our life because of wickedness? It's unconfessed? I don't know. I just thought it was worth thinking about and it was a reminder to us to be afraid of sin. It was a reminder of us to renew our awe before the Lord. Can I show you how God works though? Will you turn to Matthew chapter 1? You know, I really don't like this Judah guy very much. I hope that came through. And I don't understand why God used him. But then I stop and think, and I think, I guess I better be thankful that God uses dirty, rotten, scumbag sinners or I'd be ineligible. How about you? In Matthew chapter 1, can I show you something? Beginning with verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Okay, I got that straight. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Okay, these are the guys we're studying. And Jacob, the father of, there he is, Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. You know where they're going to end up, right? Look at verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. Can I tell you that I don't think he deserves to be in the line? Isn't it interesting that this at some level, at least pseudo-incestuous act with his daughter-in-law is the very line through which and the children that resulted from this illicit relationship is the very line through which our Lord Jesus is born. Somebody who doesn't deserve to be in the royal lineage is in the royal lineage. But then it made me think of Ephesians chapter 2. Will you turn there quickly? And with this we're done. Ephesians chapter 2. Somebody who doesn't deserve to be in the royal lineage is in the royal lineage. Ephesians chapter 2. Look at these verses beginning with verse 1. As for you, Ephesians 2.1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. 
Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. What did we deserve? We deserve condemnation. We didn't deserve any good thing. We are objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Do you know what that means? It means that God took undeserving people and positioned them in Christ, in the heavenlies, forgiven as a testimony of His grace and His kindness. It works like this. Somebody's walking through the halls of heaven and they look over there and they say, well, look at there. There's there's Woody Beto. He doesn't deserve to be here. And there's Van Marceau. And there's all these that used to come to Fellowship Bible Church. And we don't deserve to be there. And God says, yeah, no, they don't. They don't deserve any of this but they're a trophy of my grace and my kindness. Because of my great love and kindness, I decided to save them and forgive them. Isn't that something? I don't deserve a royal lineage. I don't deserve to be the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ positionally. I could do nothing to satisfy the wrath of a holy God when I was dead in trespasses and sin. My friend, do you know where you are this morning? Do you still sit in the chair of condemnation? Or have you entered into the great riches of His grace by faith alone, by no works or merit of your own, by simply acknowledging that when Jesus died on the cross, He paid the price for your sin, and you've come to the point of the great exchange. The great exchange is you admit your sinfulness and lay it down like a bag of dirty laundry. God takes your sinfulness and puts it in Christ. And he takes Christ's righteousness and he builds it into a beautiful robe like Joseph wore and he puts it on you. And there it is. And you who are a dirty, rotten sinner and me the same way by the riches of his grace positioned in the heavenlies, we don't deserve it. Judah didn't deserve it and we don't deserve it. There's lessons from a sinful man. Spiritual carelessness will wreck your life. Generational consequence means you'll wreck somebody else's life but this great position of grace, God interrupts it and gives you what you don't deserve. Isn't that amazing? There's a lesson from a sinful man. He doesn't deserve it, but neither do I. Let's bow in prayer. I'm going to pray in just a minute. Will you bow your heads, please? And I wonder if there's anyone here today who's dead in their trespasses and sins. You're just a, a sinner. You know you can't stand in the holiness of God. You stand condemned. You violated God's rules, God's law. Do you realize today that God loves you so much He sent Jesus Christ to die in your place that His blood would wash away your sin? And you can exchange your dirty sin today for the righteousness of Christ. We don't deserve it. Can't really explain it. But there it is. And you can become part of a royal lineage in Christ that you don't deserve. I encourage you in your heart and mind right now, sinner, admit your sinfulness to God. Ask Him for for forgiveness in Christ. 
Exchange your sin for Christ's righteousness right now. He'll give it to you. He gave His only begotten Son for you. And Christian, for some of us, we need a wake-up call, don't we, on this spiritual carelessness and moral callousness that we end up living in. Thinking stuff doesn't matter and it ends up ruining our lives and ruining everybody else's life. Let's wake up. Let's hate sin and love righteousness. I'm thankful for God's grace and that we don't seem to be in an era where God's zapping Ananias and Sapphira's every, every aisle and every church. But let's stop playing around with sin and let's renew our commitment to holiness and purity and righteousness and obedience. Let's be Joseph's, not Judah's. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness to us. Thank you for this interesting story. And Lord, though Judah embarrassed himself with his own sinfulness, in your grace, you saw fit to bring about a holy lineage through him. And Father, we have mucked up and embarrassed ourselves with sinfulness. And we'll turn to you, by no merit of our own, to enter into that holy lineage of the family of God. Work in hearts and minds. Father, help us to hate sin and love righteousness, that there be nothing between us and you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.